What is going on, guys? It is Michael Hunter. This is the ACC Basketball Report. I appreciate you joining me on a Tuesday night, a rainy Tuesday night in the in the Triangle. Um, I have a fantastic show for you guys tonight. Tonight I have bracketologist Rocco Miller joining me. We talk about everything as far as around the nation, as well as the ACC tournament, as well as what you guys can expect on Selection Sunday. I- I'll tell you guys, this was... Like it took me 15 minutes to get out of the intro because I was just kind of learning things <laughs> from Rocco in the intro, just kind of bullshitting about you know bracketology and how he how he goes about his method and, and things like that. I just found it so interesting that you know it took me 10 15 minutes just to get to the outline of questions uh, that we had lined up for him. So you know I again I, I thank Rocco. He was awesome. Um, you know we went a little bit longer than I typically go, but I think the content for this pod was so interesting and and especially during this time of year that it was absolutely worth it. So. <clears throat> It's about an hour, so uh, about 15 minutes longer than we typically go. But, uh, you know, again, I think it was awesome. Rocco was great. Definitely a guy I want to have back. And, uh, you know, it's funny how different guests, like like uh, with, with Haslam or with Jonathan, you know, I just have a good time. We just bullshit and sit down. Some guys you have on are a little bit more serious. With Rocco, it was almost a learning experience for me as far as how you put a bracket together and how you evaluate teams that are maybe on the bubble or or what metrics maybe matter a little bit more. Or something like non-conference strength of schedule, which we're going to talk about on this pod, is something that I've kind of been like, eh, you know, get that out of my face. Just give me the overall strength of schedule. And Rocco actually talks about how, you know, how that matters and how much it matters uh, in this podcast. So I really hope you guys enjoy it. I will not make you wait any longer. Here he is, Rocco Miller. Farrell turns the key, drives the lane with three on the shot clock. Doesn't get it. Five seconds to play. Down the floor, Akogi. Michael. Rocco, how's it going, man? Hey, it's going well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I appreciate you taking the time to join me tonight. Oh, I appreciate you having me on. I've been looking forward to it. I know we teased it about 10 days ago or so. It's uh, Yeah, I've definitely been looking forward to it. And thanks for bearing with me tonight. No, not a problem. I understand, you know, certain things uh, take uh, precedent over uh, podcasts and college basketball, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, Unfortunately, yeah, for sure, that's always the case. <laughs> um, I, I guess since since this is my first time having you on, um, you know, you and I have kind of gone back and forth a little bit on Twitter for the last few years. I can't believe this is the first time I've had you. But uh, if you would, real quick, I guess just uh, just let my listeners know kind of who you are, you know, where they can find your work, and, and, and plug anything else that maybe you're working on. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I'm Rocco Miller. I'm a bracketologist. I've been doing this for about nine years. Um, my website is bracketeer.org. And over the years, it's been a lot of fun. This thing's been kind of building and growing over time. Um, my long, my long-term ultimate goal, and how I got started in this, is like how a lot of bracketologists out here in like Twitterland and you know, all over the web are inspired by Joe Lenardi back in the '90s. He's, mm-hmm. I, I believe, Lenardi's first year doing it was '96. Um, and so at that point in time, um, not to age myself, but I was a, I was a young high school punk. Um, I thought I thought I thought I knew more than than Joe, and I would sure. I would just kind of you know on scratch paper do my own uh, pre selection Sunday work, and I was starting to figure out that you know what most years I'm I'm actually doing better than Joe, so maybe I should start publishing this for real once mm-hmm. it uh, you know once the last decade started in the 2010s, um, I really started getting into it more and more heavily, um, but I'm long time my whole my whole life diehard college basketball fan. I've 
memories going back to seeing the Fab Five in the Kingdom um, as a little kid in nice. Seattle. And, uh, you know, I think that probably changed my life. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Uh, because I've been pretty fanatical since then. Um, so I am a University of Washington guy uh, as my hometown team. But we, when I was growing up, they, were, they had so many awful seasons, much like this season, mm-hmm. that uh, myself and a lot of my core friends uh, in the basketball world have had na- big national teams, so a lot of people don't know this. I actually grew up rooting for Syracuse, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know, so I followed all those teams in the, the '90s. They were always on Big Monday. Uh, that was a big deal. Yes, um, and so I've stayed really close to the national scene and been really involved from a top-down approach, even going way back. So do, coming over to doing bracketology and now doing some media and journalism work has been really exciting for me. Um, and I really do love all 32 conferences, so it's it's just been a lot of fun, and I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I, you know, one thing that's it's interesting is a guy that goes kind of that that far back. I, you know, not to date you again, but <laughs> what what has been how drastic of a change has it been since you know Lenardi basically did it out of his basement to to what we're seeing now with things like the bracket matrix competition and, and the Jerome and things like that? How drastic of a change ha- has it been over over the time that you've been involved with it? Yeah, I mean it's definitely just created a lot more popularity around the subject. It's incredible still to me, like how many people are always checking the updates and that's when I knew it was working and that we could actually scale this up to be something bigger, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, the, in those early years doing this. And it's, for me, it's just a lot of fun. It's a lot of education. Um, I like to do a lot of historic, I'm more on the historical side. I, I like to study what past committees do and apply it to the current season. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people that do it, you know, there, there's so much analytics in the game. I know you had Eric Haslam on recently mm-hmm. where, um, I think that really helps somebody fill out a bracket more than some, something like what I'm doing, where I'm just actually doing more of an art and science exercise where I'm actually di- dissecting who these members of the committee are and what I simulate those conversations to go like when they have, you know, four different resumes side by side and sure. what that conversation is like in the, in the room. So when I'm doing my uh, projections, it's very much based on how I'm simulating those conversations in my own uh, mind and what I understand that they, the things that they care about. Whereas other people doing bracketology, you know, they sometimes could actually score higher than me than maybe thinking about it a little differently, mm-hmm. or they could they could score a lot lower, but their purpose of putting a bracket out is maybe not for the same purpose as me. And I think that is really good for the common basketball fan. You can get you can take something from my website that you can maybe not see anywhere else, and then you can like for myself as a, also being a fan, I can find different aspects of analytics and predictions or. Uh, just dissecting the data a little bit differently from some of our other friends out here. So it's it's just really cool to be a part of. Absolutely. Do you do you so you're you're basically using a historical reference as to how the committee selects their participants as opposed to so do metrics play a heavy part in your projection at all, or are you just basically studying historical data based on what you think the committee will do? Well, I'm doing it to a reasonable extent. You know, as of last year, we've moved, we moved away from the RPI and into the net. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's been a long time because we've talked about the net almost every day now. Right. And it, it kind of feels like we've had it for 10 years, but in reality, we've only had it for a year and a half. Right. Um, and so it's just funny to, you know, because I'm constantly, you know, sinking my teeth into all these different teams and resumes and thinking about, uh, you know, the net itself is really just a sorting tool, much like the RPI is, and it really does come down to those actual teams you played and where you played them and how you did in those games. Um, and it's funny that, you know, a lot of times we can all get lost, myself included, in just, you know, this net game and the quadrant game, but there's a yes. lot more to it. 
And I'm really glad you asked the question because, you know, nowadays when you look at a team sheet, you see different factors on the team sheet, like a strength of record metric, like a BPI is even listed, Ken Palm's listed, Sagarin's listed, and uh, and the uh, KPI is listed. So, uh, you know, I maybe should be looking at that a little closer. I'm trying to understand from committee members. Um, I was actually able to interview Mike O'Brien from uh, the University of Toledo. He's on, he's one of the committee members. He's at uh, the AD there. So I asked him a lot of questions, and to him, he wasn't as big on that. But I could imagine maybe some of the members of the room are. Um, I'm now using it more when I, I really can't break a tie between two teams. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that can really kind of tell the difference. So it is it is certainly playing more and more into the role, uh, but it's, it is certainly also not the end-all, be-all. We saw a team in St. John's last year get in despite having a net of 76. And, of course, um, out there in ACC country, NC State, despite having a 33, was almost disqualified based on their non-conference rate of schedule. So those other factors still carry more weight. But the analytics are becoming more and more into into the room um, as part of that conversation. Yeah, I, yeah last year the the net so far I, I treat it kind of as uh, as kind of a grace period. But you've mentioned that you know we've we've had it for basically a year and a half now. Um, I guess the first question would be: Do you do you still prefer it to the RPI? And if if you could tweak it, how, how would you tweak it? Or do you even know how you would tweak it, considering we don't know the the formula? <laughs> Good question. I, I actually do like it more than the RPI because I think the RPI uh, was very publicly known by the end of that RPI era that you could game that schedule-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, scheduling things, honestly, that's an area that I really focus on too. Um, scheduling-wise, things have not gotten better, obviously, with TV money, and it's much more lucrative for power leagues to do 20-game schedules, do MTE events where they only play in each other. It's getting much, much tougher to see those games in November, December where you would have an East Tennessee State go to LSU that we saw this year. Those mm-hmm. are becoming more, more and more um, extinct. And so, uh, but but to to this just direct question, net versus RPI, I think net's a more fair way because you are trying to put the best 36 at-large teams in the field, and that is going to be a little bit more appropriate than just taking more uh, win li- win loss only record into account. I think win loss record has its place, and that's why you still go through the exercise of scoring a resume and figuring out which resume is more impressive. And that is always going to be your first line of defense. But I think the Nets a better sorting tool for figuring out who is, uh, you know, truly a better team. Uh, so I think it's an improvement. Um, the one thing I would tweak, I know it was a loaded question. The one thing I would tweak <laughs> is that they came out publicly when they introduced the net and they kind of teased everybody by saying, and we found this out later to be not true. They teased everybody by saying the, the, uh, the score, um, the uh, margin of victory is capped at 10 points. That's right. But when you actually break down the other elements of the net, which one of those is, is big on offensive efficiency, I think it's 20% of the formula, or somewhere we can guess is 20%, um, give or take. Once the coaches realize that, you see these games play out differently. I've actually been to a lot of games this year where uh, a team's up by 20 with a couple minutes to go, and you see the starters still in the, on the court going yep. hard at each other. Um, I, I was actually specifically watching a game back in early January. Washington and Oregon State were uh, probably seems like many moons ago. We're actually still in the in the bubble chase, <laughs> <laughs> and and Oregon State's coach Wayne Tinkle he would not call off the dogs. He left Tress in there. He left all the starters in, and that thing went down from a twenty point lead with the two minutes to go, and they end up losing by eight. And yeah. that kind of stuff actually can pay off if you land on the bubble in March 
because it will impact your net rating. It will also impact some of your other metrics that, that of course, plays into Ken Palm and others. So it's just really interesting. I know Nate Oates is another coach that I've talked to who is really big on uh, playing out every possession no matter what the score is, and that's how Buffalo got such a really high net last year. Um, they may have landed in the 20s, but they were actually really close to the top 10, I think, if I remember correctly, because they were doing that every game. They're blowing out MAC teams, and they treated every possession like gold. And I think that's kind of wrong for the sport. Like, there should be a, a degree where a coach should feel comfortable uh, with two minutes to go to bring his subs in, mm-hmm. and we're not seeing that anymore. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as an ACC guy, we saw it in almost every game last year with Virginia Tech when Buzz Williams was still the coach. He was trying to use that margin of victory part of the net to kind of game the system a little bit. And, you know, sometimes kind of came under fire with it, but, uh, you know, it seemed to work out pretty well for Virginia Tech in the end. So um, what I want to do real quick is, well, not real quick, but just kind of, uh, let me, I don't know what's going on in the headphones here. But um, to let everybody know, what we're going to do is we're going to go kind of around the nation, similar to what we did with Eric a week ago. I will get uh, some thoughts from Rocco uh, from some specific conferences and specific teams, and then we're going to kind of drill down and get into the ACC. So first we'll go around the nation. I want to talk real quick, and I spoke about this on uh, the Rockin' 25 podcast a couple weeks ago, where the question was, you know, what kind of major conferences or or non-typical conferences are in danger of being a one-bid league. And I said the A-10 as well as the uh, the American. You know, we're a couple weeks later. I don't think a whole lot has changed, especially since Rhode Island is, is struggling a little bit and the American hasn't really stepped forward at all. What do you think the likelihood of each of those conferences being a one-bid league is? Yeah, so I, I, my gut tells me both will end up being okay by Selection Sunday, and here's why. So I'll start with the AAC um, I think AA, the AAC, we all know now, uh, Wichita State, Cincinnati, Memphis are clearly on the bubble. Mm-hmm. I think Houston is, is about as close to a lock as you can ask for. We'll, we'll, for sake of argument, we'll call them a lock. And so right now we're just basically seeing one of these three get in. It looks pretty likely with the remaining schedule. Wichita State's playing at Memphis. Uh, I think that's today. Mm-hmm. And then um, also, also Wichita State will wrap up uh, with Tulsa. Um, not that, that Tulsa's a tournament team, but it's another chance to prove themselves. So I guess for sh- focusing on the Shockers, if they lost tonight, they might be on the outside looking in. If they lose again this weekend, they're going to really need a lot of help. Uh, but that, of course, would then bump Memphis back up to really close to the cut line, if not in. And Memphis has another tremendous opportunity this weekend uh, by going to Houston. So good news for Tiger fans is they still have the opportunity this week to play themselves into the field. I think if they got both those wins, it'd be really hard for them to get knocked back out. Mm-hmm. Um, not many teams. I think only one team's won at Houston all year, and that was BYU. And then um, for Cincinnati, uh, they just have to win, right? So they've got South Florida and I believe Temple this week. They got to get both of those. If they do, that gets them into the top four. That's really key because then they have a buy to the quarterfinal. Mm-hmm. Um, they may actually need to get to the final because – uh, if they play somebody that's not the teams I've discussed thus far, that's not going to really help their resume too much, playing them on a neutral court in Dallas, unless it is SMU, which might be looking um, – they'll be looked at as a semi-away win on the on the team sheet, but it's almost like a road win if they get to play SMU. Um, but let's, let's, let's pretend like they don't. Um, they will have to probably get to the final, I think, to get in. They're my last team in right now. Um, but they've, the, the more important thing for Cincinnati is that what happens to the teams around them more than what they can do for themselves as long as they don't 
step on the grenade and lose to <laughs> uh, one of those teams this week, right? That's right. But I think between all those different scenarios, the odds are one of those teams are going to step up and take a second bid. And if they don't, you still have that opportunity for a team like Tulsa. Tulsa's already clinched a bye. They already clinched a top four spot. So that means they're three wins away from cutting down the nets, and they'll be very well supported down there in Dallas, not too far of a drive for Golden Hurricane fans. Um, and that, that could also get the AAC a second team. Yeah, one thing we'll mention real quick is, I mean, right before, I would say probably half an hour before we get on the phone here, um, Jaron Cumberland, uh, the star for Cincinnati, has been ruled out for tonight's game. So that will definitely have a heavy oh, wow. impact on Cincinnati. And I just saw this yeah. afternoon that DJ Jeffries from Memphis has been shut down for the rest of the season as well. So um, I guess if you're a Wichita State fan, things are looking up. Um, you know, all you basically have to do is win and let the rest of it take care of itself. So those are two huge injuries in the American that are going to impact this race. Um, and then, and then I'll go to the Atlantic 10 next, if that's appropriate. Okay. Yeah. So the Atlantic 10, this is more of a a gut feel thing. I I do like rich. I have Richmond as the second to last team in Cincinnati is the last team in. So obviously on very thin ice. Um, the thing I like about Richmond's resume especially more than Rhode Island's per se. I think those are the two teams bracketologists are looking at very closely right now um, is R- Richmond's got that win over Wisconsin on a neutral court. Wisconsin continues to play very well. Uh, I have them all the way up to a five seed. So the weight of that win kind of shows that Richmond can not only make the tournament and win a game or two in the tournament mm-hmm. committees looking for those types of things for these last spots. Um, because at this point we're talking about selection, not seeding. And so that to me uh, is is a nice variable. They also show the ability to go to Rhode Island and win on Rhode Island's home court in, in, in conjunction with a handful of other wins away from home, which is something like a team like Rutgers can't say. It's a team, it's something that like a team like Stanford can't say. And so to me, those little things are going to stick out a little bit more for Richmond. Uh, but for the league as a whole, uh, Rhode Island, of course, gets that monster opportunity hosting Dayton. Mm-hmm. Um, that's coming up here. And then if they can get that win, they're clearly back on the good side of the bubble. I still have them out. Um, and, and then the other good thing, too, is you'll have a fourth team getting a bye that is nowhere near the cut line, that it's still only three wins away from getting a bid if somebody can knock off Dayton. The interesting thing about that is Dayton has never won the A-10 tournament, <laughs> and the number one the number one seeds in the A-10 tournament have a long history of choking. That's right. So so history is on the side for the A-10 to get a, get multiple bids. And then I'll give the last layer of, of that whole explanation. Uh, Bernadette is the uh, A-10 commissioner. I'm sorry, I'm not remembering her last name, but she is on the committee as well. Um, <laughs> I think everybody, um, most people familiar with the process know when any team in your conference or if you're an AD of a school is discussed, you have to leave the room. That's right. Yeah. However, one thing that uh, I don't think is accounted for, I think that's kind of just the, the first line of defense, is there is some sort of influence. I can't really describe it. Um, that happens when you know that person's coming back in the room, and I think it does play a small role in those votes. And I just feel like if these teams are as close as they are right now, they're going to find a way to get one of them in. And I think right now that team would be Richmond, but it's a it's a fluid situation. So moving moving away from the A10 and the ACC, uh, the AAC uh, conference tournaments start this week. Who who are some teams that you're kind of keeping your eye on, and which conferences and their tournaments intrigue you the most? Yeah, the conferences that intrigue me the most, you know, I if, if some of my followers are listening to this, they, they know I was down there in Johnson City a couple of weeks ago to see Furman and East Tennessee State play. Absolutely. That was just such a tremendous experience. And um, I loved it because 
you know, I go to a lot of power conference games as well and mid-major games like this. The team, those two teams specifically play incredibly hard and play incredibly for each other. It's almost like rewinding the clock 25 years ago and watching two teams play. Um, so I'm, I am uh, a little bit biased after that experience. I'm, I'm more excited about the SoCon tournament than I can describe. So I'm very, very much into that um, and certainly looking at Furman as a team that can win that. Um, they have lights out shooters. They play so hard. Um, I mean, they'll, they'll win it by effort alone if, um, if the opportunity is there. Uh, some, some other tournaments, I think the big ones for bracketology sake, are, of course, coming up are the Mountain West and Arch Madness out in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mountain West, I think everybody knows by now, San Diego State's having an incredible year. If they somehow trip up, they just lost to UNLV. They just struggled with Nevada. They even struggled with Colorado State before the UNLV loss. Yep. So they're almost subject to a, to a loss. Um, not that the players or coaches care about this, but the league does bring in a few more bucks if they can get another team into mm-hmm. the tournament. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, possibly officials, not to, not to be a conspiracy theorist or anything like that, but we did see Gonzaga lose last year to St. Mary's in the final. <laughs> St. Mary's would not have been in the tournament without that loss. That's right. I just have this w- small suspicion that something like – Something might happen to San Diego State this weekend, and if if there's one team to keep an eye on, it's definitely UNLV playing on their home court and getting a crack at the San Diego State team in the semis if they can beat Boise, which I think they will. Um, so keep your eye on that. And then out in St. Louis, a team to keep your eye on is Bradley. Uh, the Braves, uh, yeah, they just got Elijah Childs back. He's uh, certainly one of their best players. Was part of that magical run last year that got Bradley into the tournament came out of nowhere to win the Arch Madness last year. So they've got Coach Wardle. He knows how to get it done. Uh, they'll also get Northern Iowa in the semis, which I think is a little bit um, better opportunity for an upset than an all-eyes-on-us kind of game, which is what Sunday brings for the final. Um, so if anybody's going to do it, I think it will be Bradley. But I really like this Northern Iowa team. So I, if, if I had to make a pick, I'd pick them. But I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, some other teams I'm looking for in these early tournaments is uh, keep your eye on Gardner-Webb. They've been playing very well lately. Uh, I know their best player, Dixon, he left the team. Uh, and they've actually played much better. It's almost like a Ewing theory. Um, <laughs> they, beat Radford on, they beat Radford on the road to end the year. And now they're in, they got all the momentum in the world going into this tournament. But they're going to have to win in either um, Winthrop or Radford's gym or both because it's all campus sites in the Big South. So... That'll be really fun to watch. Um, out in the Summit League, watch out for South Dakota. They were a lot of people's preseason pick. Mm-hmm. That tournament takes place in Sioux Falls, where they get a lot of local support, as does uh, all the Dakota schools. So definitely, I think one of the Dakota schools will take it because of that advantage. But in all those matchups, the South Dakota team played really tough, and they've had an otherwise disappointing year, and I think they're going to put all their eggs in this basket this, uh, for this next week. So watch out for the Coyotes. And then... Uh, the last team I have down here is out in the NEC, St. Francis of Pennsylvania. Uh, they come in as the number two seed, a little bit of a disappointing loss. One thing I've noticed about championship week over the years is a team that takes a loss on their last game before the tournament mm-hmm. usually comes in a lot more fired up once the tournament starts. So I'm always looking for those teams when I'm trying to um, make a pick. So, um, I, And I, I just think St. Francis PA has got the most talent in that league, so... I would keep your eye on them. Yeah, St. Francis was my pick in that league. Um, actually, I I figured that well, – and when I'm saying my pick, I'm, I'm talking about the Jerome because I am dead set on winning the Jerome this year. But um, – <laughs> I'm right there with you. I uh, 
you know, I, I knew that a lot of people were going to take South Dakota in the summit. So I went with North Dakota State. Um, I'm going to be honest. I've seen probably about three minutes of their game this year, and that's just what I could look up online. So, um, you know, not a, not a, an authority on the Summit League by any means, but I'm hoping to gain a few points there. And then as far as the Mountain West, I, you know, I desperately wanted to take either Utah State or Nevada. You know, Jalen Harris is a machine, and then of course, you know, for Utah State, you have uh, Sam Merrill's and Kada. But you know, I just I think that. San Diego State kind of struggling down. Not, not. I don't want to say struggle because they only lost one game, but kind of right. people are starting to to be down on them a little bit coming into the last part of the season. I think now is a good time for them to bear down and show that they they're absolutely going to deserve that number one. So I ultimately went with San Diego State there. Um, cool. I like that. I uh, I want to go to maybe the hottest team in the nation uh, in the Creighton Blue Jays. Uh, where do you have them seated? How high do you think they could potentially rise? And what do you think their ceiling is in, in the tournament this year? I, I like this team a lot. I mean, they're very fun to watch. I actually got to see them in person back in uh, December when they beat Oklahoma um, on their home court. That's a cool environment for anybody that hasn't been. Uh, they pack the house every game, no matter who they're playing. So it's fun to go to an arena with 15,000 strong every night. Um, but I do think... Um, this was a resume I was very impressed with, and I still am. Obviously, a little win taken out of the sails with the 20-point loss to St. John's on Sunday. Um, but resume-wise, they're fine. I think right now they're my top three seed. They were a two seed last week before that loss. Um, the good news for Blue Jays fans is there's not much further they can fall. I mean, they've got incredible wins away from home. They have 11 wins against teams inside the bubble. They've got five of those 11 um uh, in true road games, another neutral win over Texas Tech. And then in, in those five, two of them are Nova and Seton Hall, two two top three seeds, right? So they have a resume in terms of just the, looking at the wins that almost no other team can match. Uh, so that's going to give them a really strong seed no matter what happens from here. Um, but the one thing that keeps them, I think, from reaching the one seed line, which I think is what Blue Jay fans are uh, cautiously up to optimistic about, is they've got – Seven losses now. They're only one game over 500 in that Q1 category. We are splitting hairs, but when you're when you're trying to be a one seed and get a deserving spot over a team like Dayton or San Diego State, who's barely lost all year, seven losses is just too big of a gap. So I do think their ceiling is a two seed. But I think the ideal scenario for Creighton is to get that two seed, be able to go to St. Louis for the first weekend, and then get in that same bracket with uh, with Baylor. If Baylor stays the top seed in Houston. I, I think Creighton would not, uh, in any you know dream scenario where the chalk held, if Baylor and Creighton met in a one-two game, I think Creighton fans would take their chances. Absolutely, um, given their ability to score and Baylor's struggles right. to score. Absolutely, um, National Player of the Year race has been interesting this year. I've had probably four front runners in my mind at, at one point or another. Um, I, I think people are pretty well split uh, among those four guys that I've that I've. You know, given consideration to those being Obi Top and Luca Garza, Peyton Pritchard, and at one point I thought Miles Powell was the easy shoe in uh, for Player of the Year. Do, do you have a, a particular preference among those players, or do you have somebody else in mind? Yeah, I appreciate you asking me the question. I feel like I should be asking you this question. You um, <laughs> you do pre- you do pretty well in the personnel department. I've been paying attention. So, uh, yeah, but for player of the year, it's always a fun topic because you got these guys coming from different parts of the country playing different types of leagues. Uh, but for me, it's just, I, I will, you know, if you ask me in 10 years and you say, Rocco, 
what are you going to remember about the 1920 season, 2019-2020 season? And I will immediately go straight to Obi Toppin and Dayton. I mean, this is an unforgettable year. Mm-hmm. And obviously, obviously, I think they would still be a really good team if you take Toppin off, which is always a good question to ask for player of the year. Like, how good would this team be if you took this guy away? Uh, and I think Dayton would be in uh, – they would still be a good team, but they would not be anywhere near the levels that they've reached right now. Um, so, you know, just – Maybe a little bit biased. I'm going to go with Obi on the on the award selection, but I do think a couple other guys I'll throw in the mix that that you didn't name um, just just for fun would be uh, Devin Dotson of Kansas having yep. a pretty good year for the best team. He's, somebody gets it on that team, I think it would go to Devin, and then um, Malachi Flynn over at San Diego State, mm-hmm. uh, just a guy that I got to watch a lot because he used to play for Washington State. Maybe in, um, you know pretty in tune with the Pac-12. It's just mind-boggling that he you know, gets the, the transfer over and he becomes this, com- I mean, completely unstoppable scorer and really strong, really strong defender too. I mean, he's doing it on both sides of the ball. Yep. And I think if this is a true award, uh, just more personal preference, I would be a little disappointed if Garza wins it. Cause I, I do think he's a pretty big liability on defense. Yes. Yeah. Did you see, <laughs> have you, I don't know how much you've been on Twitter today, but did you see, um, the Not gra- enough. <laughs> the, the graphic, the graphic that Iowa basketball released comparing Garza and Toppin? No, I didn't. I'll have to look at that <laughs> they, while you're talking. <laughs> they, they released a, a graphic that was something like, uh, basically head to head against, uh, ranked opponents in the AP poll. And it was like Toppin 18 per game, zero 20 point games, and it was going right down the line. Garza has, you know, seven 20-point games and double-doubles and all this. And then you look at the bottom and it says, you know, total games against top 25 teams. Dayton has one and Iowa has, like, 15. So that's oh, <laughs> they're basically gosh. taking the one game that Dayton played against top 25 and holding it against Obi Toppin. So not a great look for Iowa, which is a team I actually really like this season. But... Um, <laughs> Th- yeah, I'm looking at it now. This is yeah. I mean, obviously, no basis for comparison. Um, <laughs> clearly, the, the the strategy out of Iowa City is to just win a popularity contest. At That's this right. Point. That's right. But I don't think they can win that. I think the nation loves Dayton, so I, oh, I think the it's nation, a bad strategy. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, as far as story goes, in a in a year that has been. I guess disappointing as far as a product goes. Dayton has been a pleasant surprise. I think this season. Um, Absolutely. One of the teams that I really enjoyed watching earlier in the season, um, simply because I, I love Huggy Bear. I just the, his personality is, is humongous. It, West Virginia now one and six in their last seven games with their only win coming against Oklahoma State. You know, I a couple weeks ago I commented on these guys on either this show or, or another show that I was on, but. You know, I, I've assumed they're safe given their Ken Palm ranking, given their quality of wins early in the season, certainly their net number. But I, I mean, you can't ignore one and six coming down. You know, de- coming down the, the 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 end of the season here. Is West Virginia in any kind of trouble here, or is it just gonna their seed is being impacted? And and how low do you think they can sink? Yeah, good question. So, yeah, I think this is where I like to remind all the listeners, it's always about the body of work. It sounds like a very boring answer, mm-hmm. uh, but it is the, the kind of the level set sentence that everybody has to take a deep breath after every game wins or ends. No matter how great the success is or how low the fall is, it's still about what happened that entire season. So every result is that one, that percentage of the season. It's that part percentage of the story. 
Um, and the good news for Huggy Bear and West Virginia is they had a really good story in the non-conference, and that's still important. Uh, equally as important as what's going on now, right? So um, the good news there is they, I, there is really no scenario for them to fall out because their last two games are in Ames, uh, a reasonable place to lose, even though without Halliburton and all that, mm-hmm. it would, would be viewed as a bad loss nationally. Resume-wise, I think that's a pill they can swallow. And then the last game is Baylor. So let's just say, you know, they lose both of those. Then they show up for the Big 12 tournament and get beat by, I don't know, Texas or somebody. And so uh, if that all happens, I still think they're in really good shape. They've got the uh, – right now in the – I break it into three columns. Mm-hmm. But they have, no, they have no losses outside of the top two. So they don't have that bad loss factor. They've won all the games they were supposed to. Uh, right now there's seven games over 500 when you factor in. Uh, all games taken away quadrant four, which is, a, a, um, I think, a good way to look at a whole body of work. You throw away the garbage by games, and then you look at what's left. They're 17 and 10 in those games. There's teams around them, uh, like right now Marquette's next to them, right? Marquette's only 13 and 10. Um, so, you know, not, not saying they'll stay above Marquette. If they lose a game more or two, they'll definitely below, be below them. But they've got enough cushion. There's, there's currently um, a good... 15, 16 teams below them. Okay. Uh, so I think right now if they free-falled and lost three in a row, which is all that's left, we're probably looking at about a 10 seed. they basically become what Oklahoma was the last two years. You know, <laughs> Oklahoma has had these amazing non-conference years, yep. especially that Trey Young year, that's and they right. couldn't even figure out which game the last couple of months. But the committee comes back time and time again and proves it's about the full body work. And they're, clear, they're really, I mean, there might be a settled last 10 game bias. It's mm-hmm. certainly not on any data sheets, and it's it's been eliminated for about 20 years now in the process. Um, and so I think sometimes they even go as far as putting them as like a nine or a 10 seed just to prove that point even. So do, what seed line do you have them on right now? Right now I have them as a seven. Okay. I was going to say if they fall to an eight, nine, that is a rugged matchup for, for a, a, not one scene in the, in the second round. Yeah, that, would be, right. that would be crazy. I mean, as bad as West Virginia's played, there's no denying that they have a, you know forces on the inside, you know, despite their totally. guard play being kind of below average lately. <clears throat> yeah, and they're really close to that too, Michael. They they're my last number seven right now, so mm-hmm. they're you know they lose in Ames, they're probably dropping down to an eight nine, almost guaranteed. So, one more question. We'll do a little rapid fire, uh, and then we'll wrap up this this segment around the nation. We'll move on to the ACC, which is where probably everybody's waiting for us to get. I know one team in particular is waiting for us to comment on them. Um, I'll just name off some teams. Let me know if you think they're in or out, and then maybe a quick reason why. I think the first one that I'm going to give you is 18 and 12 Texas Tech, who lost a kind of a heartbreaker to Baylor last night after forcing overtime. You got the Red Raiders in or out right now, and where do you have them? Yeah, I I think I'm actually lower on them than most. Mm-hmm. Um, they're down to an, they're down to an 11 seed for me. They're they're only two spots above the first four, so basically the sixth team in. Um, they're a very confusing team to try to place because there's not been many resumes like this. Um, they're, they're four games below now, five games below 500 in the top two quadrants, which is a very big black eye compared to others, but their power rankings and their net metric, um, is holding very strong because of games like the Baylor game last night where they go to overtime and they, they've gone and beaten Louisville and Madison square garden. They've, they've hung, they went to uh, fog Allen. That game came down to the last possession, mm-hmm. if I remember right. So, um, I think there's just this, when Texas Tech gets under the microscope, which at this point they probably will be, when you get down to these final spots for selection, people are just going to 
I think the room, the consensus in the room will be this team is, belongs in the tournament because mm-hmm. we've seen them do it against the top competition. That's going to help them a lot, but they, they've still got to win a couple more games. They can't just lose their way out and depend on that. Um, there's still work to be done, but they're, they're, they've been slipping quickly this last week or two. Um, I was asked in a roundtable discussion earlier this week who I thought the third best team in the Big 12 was currently. I said Oklahoma. I know they're a bubble team. What do you think of the Sooners? Yeah, I think the Sooners are a little bit more on solid ground after last week. Mm-hmm. You know, that win in Morgantown, even though West Virginia's slipping like we just discussed, that looks really nice. Um, now you've got a, now they've got a, something they didn't have before, a road win against a team that's within the bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, and West Virginia, you know, still in the top half of the bracket, so that's better than even, you know, just being barely inside the bubble. So that that's a nice-looking win. They've now got four wins against the field. Uh, they've played, you know, a good mix of road games. I think they're in there right now as my top 10 seed, um, which is relatively safe compared to where they were. I think just 10 days sure. ago, they were my first team out. Um, but they got two They got two wins last week over tournament teams, and that was huge for them. Um, in typical Randy Bennett fashion, St. Mary's doesn't play a huge schedule, though I think it's a, it's a little bit better this year than it has been in years past. Um, St. Mary's, say they experience an early exit in the WCC. How strong is their resume, and what seed line do you have them on, if any? Yeah, so right now i got St. Mary's as an eight. Okay. Uh, they're the, the highest eight, so they're pretty safe yep. overall. The, re- the reason for that is they went out and put together a really good schedule this year, and then mm-hmm. they got those wins for Utah State, Arizona State, Wisconsin, uh, four, four wins total within the bubble because uh, they did beat BYU out here. Uh, St. Mary's is actually just a few miles from from my residence, so I get to see them quite a bit. Um, and they've won 10 total games away from home. Uh, obviously, in the WCC, you should get uh, more wins away from home than a Big Ten team, but uh, that means something to the committee. And uh, they've, they've told St. Mary's for years, who's notorious for having a terrible schedule, mm-hmm. go out and schedule. And they've done it this year. Yes. So I think they belong. I think they safely belong. And, you know, when you look at a 40-point win over Arizona State, uh, that's looking a lot better these days than it did a couple months ago. Sure. So some of that stuff is helping them too. Um, UCLA, which has come on strongly. What do you? Uh, where you got the Bruins? Hottest team in the country, them or Providence. Um, it's been incredible to watch. I've got them barely in. Um, they, they're an 11 seed right next, right below Texas Tech, so fifth team in overall. They're on shaky ground though because there's a couple factors really. Um, about UCLA, so they're they're right between. I, I want to say they're on two hundred fifteenth non conference strength of schedule. That's a huge deal because once you get into the two hundred plus range, um, especially two fifty plus, you're you're rarely going to see a team go to Dayton uh, with a, with a non conference strength of schedule that high. They like to reserve those last four spots for a team that went out and scheduled well, that has good a good mix of results, and that's why you see teams like Utah State, Richmond, Cincinnati in my first four because those are the types of profiles. Uh, traditionally, the committee likes to put into the first four. So I think, personally, I think UCLA is not going to get one of those last uh, final two spots, maybe three spots. They want to be safely above Dayton. I've got them just there now, but that requires to stay there and to improve a win at USC this weekend and a really good showing in Las Vegas at the Pac-12 tournament. It's going to be a fascinating couple weeks. So let me, well, we're going to go off on a little tangent here real quick, but this has always interested me. I've always 
kind of dismissed non-conference strength of schedule in favor of overall strength of schedule. So, you know, when an ACC team kind of schedules lightly, and not as lightly as like NC State did last year, but, um, you know, when your non-conference strength of schedule is 240, but your overall strength of schedule is, you know, 41, is that a big... Is that a negative in the eyes of, of the committee, or do you think that levels out, or does non-conference strength of schedule matter more than maybe I'm giving it credit for? Well, so that's a really good question, and that that was the most confusing part of the bracket reveal last month um, because I've been uh, researching this for a long time, and it's always been in my determination that that stuff is very important for selection, mm-hmm. but less important for seeding. So if you have a team like Penn State. I think when the bracket reveal came out, Penn State, most people projected as a four seed. Mm-hmm. And, and the guys got on TV, not only were they not a four seed, but they talked about three other teams they considered and didn't even list Penn State. So I was actually uh, fortunate enough to be invited to the teleconference after that show. And I asked Mitch Barnhart, the uh, athletic director at Kentucky, why Penn State was not mentioned. And he said, flat out, non-conference strength of schedule, which for Penn State right now is 330. And it's been that way all year. Yeah. Um, and that was that was shocking to me because now that tells me they're not only using it for selection, but they're using it for seeding. And I've had to adjust a lot of my forecasting because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out what this committee particularly cares about. But going back to the UCLA question in your NC State example from last year, I think uh, the reason why they factor non-conference much more closely than, than actual full strength of schedule is typically uh, if you're in a bubble situation, you're – you probably, you know, especially in the ACC, you probably had the chance to go to Duke, went mm-hmm. to Florida State, went to Louisville, went to Syracuse, went to all these places to get good wins, and you probably failed in all those opportunities. And now what did you <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Yeah, it, so, and if you had one of those wins or two of those wins, you, we, you wouldn't even be in this discussion, right? right? right. So, so that kind of, that's why I've always thought this only comes up at the end, but now second-guessing that a little bit. But that's why they look at NCSOS the close, because you hear almost every chairman come on CBS after the show's over, if, if, for those of you that stay on and keep watching, sure. like me, um, <laughs> and they'll say, who did you play, where did you play them, mm-hmm. and what happened when you played them? And you can tell that story pretty quickly in a conference, but then the differentiators start to happen outside of the conference, and I think that's what ends up putting more weight on that. The way that the NCSOS is made up, uh, just purely using wins and loss record, I don't think is the most fair way to do it, but that's a different topic. Um, but that, but that is the simple answer on why it becomes such a big deal for these final spots. All right, last team I'm going to talk about before we make our way into the ACC is a team that I, I don't want to say we we've gone back and forth, but we've discussed at length within the Rock and Twenty Five uh, voters. I, I do not put Eastern Tennessee State in my top twenty five. I, I love the SoCon Shore, um, but when you <laughs> when you play three non-D1 schools, I, I just I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. If, if ETS loses in the SOCON, say, early, do they have the resume with those three non-D1 wins to get an at-large bid? Yeah, if, if it's really that extreme, like if they lose in the quarters, it's going to be against VMI or Sanford. Mm-hmm. That's going to be big, big, big trouble, pins and needles all the way till Sunday. Uh, that And I think another big thing, too, is, you know, I think – the most difficult part for teams like ETSU is they don't have a lot of data to look at, right? Mm-hmm. They've had that one chance at LSU. They slipped up in a game in North Dakota. They lost to your guys in North Dakota State. 
they've um, slipped up at home against Mercer, who's a red hot team. Somebody they should watch. <laughs> they'll have to watch out for again this weekend. <laughs> um, and so it really just it, it really does depend like who they lose to, how they lose, what you know, what the margin of victory will be. Even the thing because I actually think they need to stay pretty close to forty, definitely within forty five mm-hmm. of net. Right now they're forty one, I believe. Um, and they slipped. The, I'm I'm watching them every morning when the net comes out. Um, they're like the main them in Northern Iowa. I'm watching like a hawk. Uh, because I do think that's just going to be a thing. Like, uh, if they slip to 50 for, you know, a bad loss to Sanford, for for example, that's just going to be a sticking point, I think, with the committee, because they're going to be like, we know this team's good, they had an incredible year, but, you know, they're, they're this net metric that we have to depend on to try to divide teams from small conferences versus big conferences, like, we want to, we're, we're the, a, a team at 50 doesn't belong in, and that could be the thing. So, um, I'm I, I think... All of that's going to become very critical if, if they lose early. Yeah, but I do think, but I, think I, I do think they can. I, I think they can absorb a loss to Furman in the finals, and they can yes. probably absorb a loss to uh, UNCG. And and don't get me wrong, I, it's strictly a resume thing with me. I, this team is very good. This team is a, a team oh, that's absolutely yeah. capable of winning a game or two in the NCAA tournament. Yeah. I just when I look at their resume on paper, if you take the name away, take the coach away, and you just look at what their body of work is, I, I, I just don't know if I can if I can put them in the top twenty five. I don't know if I can put them in the tournament based on that. Um, and I think. Yeah, and I think it bears mentioning, too. I agree with what you said, and I like this team a lot personally, but I, I, I ignore all that during the exercise. Um, and I think I think the fact they won by double digits at LSU, mm-hmm. if LSU can finish strong, I mean, that could be just that little difference they need to hang on to one sure. of the final bids if they need it. So. Uh, we're going to move into the ACC real quick. Um, <laughs> to say it's a down year would be an understatement, I believe. I'm going to ask you some questions that – Maybe a little bit rhetorical, but uh, I'm going to ask him anyway because, you know, the people that are listening, they want to know. So, you know, a perennial bubble program, Syracuse, is there any way that, you know, without winning the ACC tournament that this Syracuse team is able to sneak into this tournament, or is it a lost cause? I'd say it's a lost cause because right now they only have one win over the field, and that was against Virginia. Uh None of their other wins are, are really even that close to the field either, and they've got a five and eleven top two quadrant record, being six games under five hundred. Even if they rally, looks right right now that they'll get one of those preliminary buys, uh, five through eight. They'll land in that area of the ACC bracket. So sure, they could get a couple of the uh, big three if they beat them back to back. That would certainly be impressive. But I think you know, like we explained with another resume before, the body of work is still not going to be there. Uh, despite that, uh, because I think there's just you got two extra losses in the third quadrant, um, and and the numbers are just a little out of whack. I don't think there's enough time to fix uh, to fix it. There's just not enough games left. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, and it's funny because after they beat Notre Dame and then they beat Pitt, uh, they were six and three in the ACC, and I was I right. was huge on this team. I thought they were the fourth best team in the league, and since they've they've gone three and six, haven't really picked up any quality wins, and they've they've just really kind of fallen apart towards the end of the season. Um, Duke starting to show up on some four lines. I'm, I'm not exactly sure where you have them right now. Um, if they win the ACC tournament, which I think they're probably going to be one of the favorites outside of Florida State, where will they end up? Is, are they back up on the two line, or, or is a one still possible if they win the ACC? 
I, I think uh, two sides probably two seeds probably the ceiling if they win the ACC tournament. I think um, you know right now they've just they've slipped all the way down to the last three, so they've got you know eight teams ahead of them to get into the one territory, uh, get back into the one territory. But now they've added some some more bad losses to the equation over the last couple of weeks, and you know when you're looking at the teams that are occupying the spots, Gonzaga, San Diego State, I mean, only one more team is going to beat them, right? Mm-hmm. They're already into their conference tournament. So I don't think there's enough Duke can do to surmount that because they just have such a uh, dominant record no matter – no matter. It only, way, only way they can do it is almost a perfect storm where uh, San Diego State loses to somebody terrible, mm-hmm. Gonzaga loses to somebody terrible, which is almost impossible because they have a bye to the semifinals. Um <laughs> And and Dayton loses to somebody terrible. So so I think it would be unrealistic to think Duke could get to the one. Obviously, they would have a great resume uh, and back up into the two area pretty safely, I think, if they ran the table. What do you think uh, Virginia's ceiling is? And do you think this is Tony Bennett's finest job as far as coaching in the season? Well, you know, I was probably going to ask you that. I know you're the uh, um, ACC guy, but... But uh, I would have to say Tony Bennett's finest job was last year when he turned around a team <laughs> <That's> that, <true. laughs> that, was, that lost as a one seed to UMBC and took them to the title with a bunch of miracle wins in the tournament. Um, um, all joking aside, uh, I know he's made uh, a, a tremendous amount of progress with this year's team. And I think that's the purpose of the question, and I give him a lot of credit for that. He's an amazing coach, as we all know. Um, he did do a fine job. You know, I was – obviously following him closely, uh, even more closely when he was at Washington State. There was a team with uh, Kyle Weaver and Derek mm-hmm. Lowe that ended up getting a two-seed under Bennett's direction, uh, got him in line for the Virginia job. Uh, that was just kind of like, wow. you know, They were nowhere near anybody's boards at the start of that year right. and, and dominated the Pac-12, really. So um, he's had a lot of fine jobs, and this just goes on to that amazing resume of his. Yeah, I agree 100%. He's just a good coach. I think that's just kind of the bottom line. Um, exactly. A, a team that I was that I was high on coming into the season, I thought maybe they were a dark horse ACC contender, was Notre Dame. Um, if they win out as far as the regular season is concerned, 20-11, 11-9 in the ACC, if they're able to win a couple games maybe in the ACC tournament, any hope for the Irish or are they pretty much destined for the NIT? I mean, it does help a little bit that they get to play Florida State tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming they, they win out there and and get some wins, I just think they're pretty much doomed. Um, going back to this non-conference straight the schedule, they're in the 300s. They're in that black. Uh, no chance of getting a Final Four, uh, or excuse me, we should call it first four to differentiate it. No spot, no no chance in my book for them to get a first four spot. So now they've got to get even further up the seed list. Mm-hmm. Um, a win over Florida State certainly doesn't hurt. Um, <laughs> if no. they can maybe. <laughs> if they can add in a Louisville win, another Florida State win, you know, obviously we got to go back under the microscope a little bit more. Um, but I, I still, I've, I've taken them off my board because I don't, I don't see that as a rea- realistic mm-hmm. possibility. But uh, ask me again on uh, Saturday morning next week if if they're still alive. <laughs> my, uh, <laughs> my my preseason national champion was uh, the Louisville Cardinals. I have. Uh, uh, no, I'm not going to say faded because I don't want to be that guy. I want to, I want to, you know, a little bit of integrity is what I'm hoping to to conjure up here. But uh, do you still think, after seeing kind of their ups and downs this season, that they are they are a Final Four contender, or do you see them as kind of an early exit? 
I mean, I think they're an incredibly talented team with a great roster and a really good coach. Mm-hmm. I really respect Coach Ma- uh, Coach Mack. It's amazing he's got these guys at this level this quickly um, and gotten everybody almost away from the Patino era in, in a short order. So kudos to him. I think for me, like, you know, uh, what I what I do is try to take results and, and, and uh, t- tell you what to do with them. Uh, so I'm less – less public about my forecasting skills. And I don't know how good they are, but <laughs> what I, my, my gut tells me about Louisville is they're missing. Um, I know Jordan Orr is an amazing player in Enoch and Kimball and those guys, but uh, I, I think they're missing kind of that, that, that alpha that can just take over in the crucial moments. Mm-hmm. I've seen Louisville, uh, like I've seen their games when they lost both times to Florida state, especially the more recent one when they lost, uh, to Georgia Tech, for example, they they let those waning moments kind of slip away from them, and mm-hmm. that's that's a really concerning sign, I think, for the tournament. That, that's actually really interesting because the team, the games that they typically win and, and win handily, they just jump, yeah. they just jump out from the tip and get up big yep. early, and then they kind of ride it out. That's interesting. Um, I will say that I, I had Dino Gaudio on the show. Uh, probably three or four weeks ago now, and after talking to that man, I'm I'm, I'm even more of a Louisville fan, and I want that guy to to win a title. <laughs> that guy was just he was incredible. I just I fell in love with you know the Louisville program as a whole because that man is is all class, and uh, that, that was a fantastic awesome. interview. Um, I guess we'll kind of we'll kind of wrap it up with the question. I know. And I did this on purpose because I'm kind of that way. But, you know, a lot of fans in Raleigh, obviously, I'm in the Raleigh area. People are wondering why the hell I have not brought up North Carolina State yet. So, North Carolina State, 18 and 12. Um, (laughs) They Watching that game last night, I don't know how much of it you may have caught. But, I mean, Duke was awful in the first 10 minutes of that game last night. And I think, you know, NC State was up 15 to 10 at one point, something like that. I think they were up by three at the half, I believe. And in the second half, Duke just blew their doors off. So 18 and 12, 9 and 10 overall in the ACC. If there is going to be a fifth team from the ACC, NC State is going to be that team. Where do the Wolfpack sit with you? And, you know, do they need anything short of maybe. ACC tournament semifinals or title game appearance to, to get that that at large? Yeah, great question. I, I think I'm actually higher on NC State than some of the others out there. Okay. Um, there's a couple things I, I like what they've accomplished. They've, uh, they've got the Duke win now, which gives them something in, in the uh, quad one has now been broken up into A and B. They've got something in quad one A. When you're Getting out of these last couple of teams, a lot of them actually don't have one of those. Mm-hmm. So that stands out. You got a road win at a Virginia team that's climbing up the seed list at a very quick rate. They're all the way up to number twenty six overall, and that's a that's a really um, you know getting towards a six seed. They're a seven, so that win is just getting better with age, like like a fine wine. <laughs> and and they're holding. Um, I mean, they're really holding serve in these quadrant breakdowns. I, they've got the four quad one wins. Uh, they've got nine, and uh, they're exactly 500, nine and nine in the top two, 12 and 12 in the top three. It's certainly not pretty, but you got teams like Rutgers. Uh, I keep coming back to Rutgers. They're seven and 10, 10 and 11. Uh, and, and, they, and NC State's got way better wins. Mm-hmm. So away from home. I mean, the committee cares about what you do away from home. 
Rutgers has only done stuff at home. Yeah, Rutgers so, one in eleven at home at, on the road, something like that. One in twelve. Yeah, one in ten. Yeah. 10. So. Yeah, and they've had eight eight swings of the bat against top two quadrants, and they've swung and missed eight times. <laughs> uh, NC NC State's gone on the road in those same opportunities, and they've they've had eleven swings of the bat, and they've won five of them. They're five and six, so that's respectable. Uh, they're five and eight um, in the games total away from home and neutral against all teams. Uh, but I do think it's it's good enough and strong enough. I think they can outlast, you know, the, even the Utah States and um, Stanford and Rutgers and Cincinnati's of the world. So I feel like NC State's in pretty solid footing. Certainly don't go out on Friday and get a home loss to Wake Forest, please. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, go hold serve in that game. Lose to anybody decent in the ACC tournament. And just, I guess the only way they get knocked out from there on out would be a bunch of bid steals. But other than that, I think NC State, I got a, I got a good feeling about them. Yeah, and, and they've really been fortunate by, or fortunate and, and beneficial of a Wisconsin team that turned it around, who was only 4-4 four and four when they beat them by 15 back in early December. And now Wisconsin is maybe one of the, you know, the most respected teams in the nation right now. So that's, uh, that's, that's been a great win for them. Rocco. Man, I, this has been awesome. I learned some stuff about some bracketology tonight. I thank you. Um, was there anything else that maybe you want to hit before we take off, or, or are you all set? Michael, I appreciate you having me on. I really appreciate it, too. I could I could go on for hours. I know you could, too. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that we did this. We, we should definitely do it again soon. Absolutely. I'm thinking probably about a year from now I'll be making the same phone call. So put me on your calendar. All right. I'll do it. All right, brother. Thank you. I appreciate it. So that was Rocco Miller. I mean, if you guys don't like that interview, <laughs> there ain't a whole lot I can do for you. I mean, Rocco knocked it out of the goddamn park on that. And I'm so grateful that he took the time to join me this evening and put that podcast together because that was that was fantastic for me. I don't know what it did for you guys, but I loved every second of it. So, you know, I hope you guys learned something. I know I sure did tonight. Um, you know, so there's some things that maybe I won't take for granted. There's some things that I'll take into account when I'm putting my top 25s together from now on. And maybe someday I'll put a bracket together, which... I think all that's going to be is ammunition for Jonathan Warner to give me shit. So I don't know if I'm going to do that. Um, I guess uh, just, you know, remember, like, rate, review, share the podcast, get the word out. This is the destination for the best ACC podcast, the the best source of knowledge for the conference that you guys can go to. I firmly believe that, that we're at that point right now. And I'm going to continue to have quality guests on. We're going to keep giving you guys that quality product, and I hope you guys appreciate it. I will not waste any more of your time this evening. I have games that I need to go watch, as well as Hunters on Amazon Prime. I, I watched the first episode of that today, and i got to say, it is fantastic. Fantastic. I am on a huge TV bender lately. I just watched Altered Carbon Season 2 in like four days. So it's it's I'm, I'm stuck in front of the television now. It's Now it's March. And the conference tournament started today. It's the greatest time of the year. It's Christmas for basketball fans. I thank you guys for joining me. I will see you again next week. I am Michael Hunter. You can find me on Twitter at ACCBR1. Later. <laughs>